for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Stephen Moriarty KC, a silk at Fountain Court Chambers. In this episode, we focus on the Indian legal market and explore the extent to which foreign lawyers can practice law in India and the prospects for liberalisation in that area. Joining me in the discussion are three people who are extremely well placed to give their views on those questions, all being senior Indian advocates. We have Arvind Datta SA, a senior advocate in India whose practice is focused particularly on constitutional, commercial, taxation and regulatory laws, mainly before the Supreme Court of India. Located in Chennai, Arvind also practices as a door tenant at Fountain Court. Then we have Gaurav Pachnanda SA, a senior advocate in India and a barrister in England and Wales. Gaurav is an experienced commercial lawyer whose practice includes a wide range of commercial litigation, arbitration and advisory work with a significant multi-jurisdictional component. He is based in New Delhi, but also practices as a door tenant at Fountain Court. And finally, we have Zal Andy Regina, SA, a senior advocate and a door tenant at Fountain Court, specialising in commercial litigation and arbitration. He is located in Bombay, and his areas of practice include arbitration, enforcement, financial services litigation, companies acted in solvency matters. A large part of his practice also includes cross-border disputes involving international law firms and clients. I'm very grateful to our speakers for joining me and for making it such an interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode as well. India is a huge legal market where there's a great deal of interest amongst foreign law firms and lawyers providing legal services in India, and where, from at least one perspective, India has an interest in allowing that to happen. It's very keen, for example, to promote itself as a hub for international commercial arbitration, as exemplified by the number of very successful conferences on arbitration now being hosted in India. But it's obviously a big drag on that ambition if foreign clients cannot choose who to represent them in those arbitrations because of constraints on forums providing legal service in India. But despite that commonality of interest, there have been a number of false doors on opening up of the legal market in India. And what we want to explore uh, today are some of the rules governing that position. The present position is governed by a 2018 decision of the Indian Supreme Court in Bar Council of India against Balaji. But then in March of this year, we got the Bar Council in a notification on its proposed rules for registration and regulation of foreign lawyers, which contemplates the more extensive provision of legal services in India by foreign law firms or lawyers, but subject to a process of registration. So can we start, first of all, by getting a handle on what the current position is on foreign lawyers practicing law in India? And I want to ask you, Arvind, to start that because you were counsel in the case itself. Yes. Well, at present, the position has to be seen as from the, the judgment of the Supreme Court in Bar Council of India versus Balaji, the 2018 judgment where I represented most of the British firms. Well, that started as a public interest litigation and the prayer was not to allow foreign lawyers to practice in India. And uh, he had implemented 44 law firms from the US and the UK. And at the end of the day, what the Supreme Court, first the Madras High Court, it came before the Madras High Court, where I had also appeared. And the net result of the Madras High Court decision was that foreign lawyers could come 
fly in and fly out. That was the expression first used in the High Court, that they could fly into India, appear in international commercial arbitrations and fly out. That was the main ruling of the Madras High Court. But that was taken by the Bar Council to the Supreme Court. And there in the Supreme Court, the court went a bit more restrictive. And they said it's not just fly in, fly out. They said the practice of law will include practice in non-litigation matters. And they said that if a foreign lawyer comes to India, he would be subject to bar council rules. And that was a bit of a dampener as far as the matter was concerned. And at the end of the judgment, the Supreme Court said that the bar council of India shall frame rules to regulate the entry of foreign lawyers and foreign law firms in India. It took five years for the bar council to frame rules. And as you say, they came out in March 2023. Initially, the rules had some lack of clarity, there was some confusion. And then the Bar Council issued a press release. So today the law has to be seen in three parts. One is the Supreme Court judgment. The second are the, the notification in March and the following press rules, uh, press release. These three things present a picture of what uh, foreign lawyers have to grapple with before they set up practice in India. On the fly-in, fly-out carve-out, Arvin, can you give us some sort of idea of how you work out whether it is fly-in, fly-out, or whether you're there too often that it becomes a practice that's prohibited? As far as fly-in, fly-out is concerned, what the Madras High Court dealt with simply was that, suppose you have been engaged to appear for a British client in, a, in an Indian commercial arbitration, international commercial arbitration, you can come into India, you can argue your case and you can go. What it simply meant was that you can't set up shop here, you can't set up an office here, have an establishment and run a regular practice. But Nothing prevents you to come into Delhi or Bombay or Madras, argue a case for two, three weeks and go away. So you just don't have any permanent establishment in India. That was the meaning. Now the fly-in, fly-out has been given more of some technical trappings, which say that, look, you can't maintain an office in India. You can't practice for one or more periods exceeding 60 days in a period of 12 months. And then you have to be first engaged by the uh, foreign client outside India. So these are additional restrictions which have come in Rule 3.1 of the March rules. Okay. Before we come on to the, 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 the March rules of the Bar Council of India, didn't the Supreme Court in uh, the Bidani decision also say something about practice in international commercial arbitrations? Yes, I, the Supreme Court did say that. The Supreme Court said, yes, you can practice in international commercial arbitration. That will also amount to practice of law in India. And if you come to India and practice or appear in an international commercial arbitration, you will be subject to Bar Council of India rules, which was a bone of contention. And uh, the, we had argued unsuccessfully that if, for example, Stephen, if you came to India and appeared in a commercial arbitration and you were, had committed some breach of some disciplinary rules, you would not be subject to Bar Council regulations, but subject to your uh, parent jurisdiction, which is the UK laws applicable to barristers or to solicitors. Yeah, but the Indian court said no. If you practice, uh, you appear in arbitration in India, you could be subject to disciplinary proceedings under the Bar Council of India regulations, which was a serious concern. So essentially, pending implementation of the Bar Council of India rules, which are still up in the air, at the moment, foreign lawyers can simply practice law in India on a fly-in, fly-out basis by giving advice, 
or they can participate in international commercial arbitrations. But that's effectively it. Is that right? Uh, well, I'll put a small caveat there. Today, the safest thing is for a foreign lawyer to come into India, practice or appear in arbitrations and go away. As far as advising is concerned, the Supreme Court has said that even advisory work is uh, is is practicing law. And for practicing that law, you may require some registration. But for flying and fly out at the moment, you don't require any registration at all. You can appear in Indian arbitrations and go away. So let's then come on to the March Bar Council of India regulations. You've mentioned a minute ago, Arvind, that there's a carve-out. You don't need to register if you practice on a fly-in, fly-out basis, but you mentioned the specific conditions that apply to that. Do you see that as being a narrowing of the fly-in, fly-out position or a liberalisation? No, I think it's a narrowing of the position. It makes it that much more difficult, particularly the condition that you can't have the 60-day period. Now, what if it's a very large international commercial arbitration uh, and where the hearings may go on for uh, more than 60 days? And again, there is no clarity. Suppose it's a foreign law firm. Are you going to apply it to the foreign law firm per se or to the individual lawyers? Yeah, so that's again a problem. I, that they Perhaps the Bar Council can reconsider imposing any 60-day limit in a period of 12 uh, months. And it's very peculiar. Suppose your arbitration starts in March. Now, what is 12 months? Is it the Gregorian calendar or is it the financial year? We don't know. Wouldn't one answer to that be that you can still register with the Bar Council of India and then you are able to practice international commercial arbitration subject to restriction we're coming on to in a minute? Yes, yes, you can, you can. But even then, uh, the, uh, the purpose is the, you, you can fly in and fly out now even without registering in India at the moment, till the bar concert rules come, you can come into India, you don't have to register yourself, appear in a foreign arbitration, an international commercial arbitration and go away. That's it. Gaurav, did you want to say something? Stephen, I, one of the most significant aspects of the fly-in, fly-out provision in the Bar Council of India rules appears to be that what is permitted now is restricted to fly in and fly out for the purpose of giving legal advice to clients in India regarding foreign law and on diverse international legal issues. And this expression is capable of being interpreted that other than advisory work, fly in and fly out after the coming into force of these rules, other than advisory work, uh, no other fly in and fly out would be permitted. Now that is that is a significant narrowing down of the positions from Balaji's case because in Balaji's case there was there was no difference between just advisory work and coming in for arbitration work in terms of fly in and fly out. And I think that is an aspect that needs to be clarified. It is it is possible for some for the regulator to say that the purpose of narrowing down this fly in fly out provision is to really restrict it to advisory work so that foreign lawyers are encouraged to get themselves registered. As Arvind also pointed out, one of the restrictions under the Bar Council of India regulations on fly in fly out is also that the expertise or advice has got to be procured by the client in a foreign country. I don't think that was anything that was uh, hinted at in Balaji. What's the rationale for only allowing somebody to come and give advice in India if they're commissioned to do so outside India? As I said, to me, it appears that Rule 3 of the of, of the Bar Council of India rules appears to have been crafted in a manner where fly in and fly out 
is no longer a practical option for a professional who wants to have a significant practice in India. And it is all aimed towards encouraging uh, foreign lawyers to get themselves registered, even if their work is less than 60 days, because the scope of activities that they can be engaged in is highly, highly restrictive. And you compare that to the language of the effects of registration and the language used there is much broader in terms of who can engage a foreign lawyer and also appears to suggest specifically that, for example, arbitral disputes may or may not involve foreign law for, to enable a foreign lawyer to come in post-registration. So I think there is a slight broadening of the ability of a foreign lawyer to come and engage in certain activities post-registration. And there is a conscious narrowing down of activities that can be done without registration. Okay, who, who wants to give something of an overview of the sort of legal work you can do if you were registered as a foreign lawyer under the rules as and when it comes into force? I mean, can you advise on only English law if you're an English lawyer? Can you advise on other laws? Can you advise on English law? Can you advise an Indian client or non-Indian clients? What's the scope of the permitted practice? To me, it appears that the scope of, and particularly if you if you read the regulations based on the clarification or the press release of the of the Bar Council of India, it appears to me that all activities would be restricted to laws of the country of the primary qualification of the foreign lawyer. It is only with respect to international arbitration where the expression foreign law may or may not be involved is used, which might make it possible for, for somebody to interpret the rule in a manner to say that in matters of international commercial arbitrations, a foreign lawyer might come in to represent a foreign client. Even if there is an element of Indian law, the foreign lawyer could possibly continue to represent. But other than that, most of the other activities appear to suggest to me that it is all going to be restricted to the law of the country of the primary qualification. Zal, I mean, what's your view on that question? I mean, I think Gaurav's suggesting that the position may possibly be, if the rules are implemented, that I couldn't come to India to advise an Indian law, but I could participate as an advocate in an arbitration and argue Indian law. Do you think that's what the, the rules contemplate? Yes, Stephen, I, I think I broadly agree with Gaurav on this. The thrust of the rules seems to be that foreign lawyers should, broadly speaking, only advise foreign clients. Their advice as a matter of content should only be with regard to foreign law. There is, however, some unclear language which has been used in two of the rules which uh, seems to suggest that in international arbitration cases, foreign law may or may not be involved. The exact scope of that expression, I think, uh, needs clarification. But broadly speaking, I do agree with what Gaurav said. And reverting to what I said in the beginning, I think the idea of the rule is to restrict foreign lawyers to advise foreign clients on aspects of foreign law. Stephen, if I may just come in here for a minute. Yeah. If you read paragraph 6 of the press release of the 19th of March, it says that foreign lawyers would be allowed to appear for their clients in international commercial arbitration. And the small note appended to that says that today, many arbitrations in India are going to Singapore, London and so on. By permitting foreign lawyers to appear in international commercial arbitration in India, you will be encouraging India to become a hub for international arbitration. So I think the press release at least makes it clear that they don't intend to restrict 
say, for example, you as a barrister from coming to India to appear for your client in an international commercial arbitration. Okay. Can, can, can I ask you a supplementary on that? Because you, you mentioned in your opening remarks, Arvind, that the Bar Council of India press release had said some things about the earlier regulations that were somewhat confusing. I mean, the press release says that foreign lawyers and law firms shall be allowed to advise their clients about foreign laws and international laws only. But it also says they can render advisory work about such laws for their foreign clients only. To what extent do you understand what's said in that press release to represent what the rules themselves say? Uh, actually, the, uh, this question of a foreign law firm coming to India to have advisory work for foreign clients is not there in the rules. This has been this has become a further restriction in the press release, which has to be further clarified because to me, it would be very difficult to expect a foreign law firm to register in India, set up an office in India, and then advise a foreign client only on foreign law. Now, why would anybody do that? So this particular passage about a foreign law firm giving advisory work for foreign clients on foreign law, uh, it doesn't make much sense. We'll have to really get it clarified by the Bar Council saying that, look, if a foreign law firm is in India, it can advise uh, foreign clients, not just on foreign law, but on the Indian laws as well. Okay. Yeah. Zal. I mean, there is an interesting edition, which is actually, it, it runs through the rules as well, but it comes out in the first paragraph of the clarification, where the clarification suggests that foreign lawyers and law firms may be allowed to advise their clients about foreign laws and international laws only. So we have a new concept of international laws, which appears now in the press release. Presumably international laws are laws which apply to India as well as to foreign countries and foreign parties. So that's another addition which is brought about by the press release. And I think another area where we can have a little bit of useful clarification as to what exactly they mean by foreign laws and international. And Zah, just to add that, Para 1 says a foreign lawyer can advise their clients. It doesn't say Indian client or foreign client. I mean, a foreign lawyer can advise an Indian client on foreign laws and international laws. But then Para 2 adds a point that they can advise to advisory work only on foreign clients. So while Para 1 doesn't talk of Indian or foreign clients, Para 2 restricts it to foreign clients. So that's another area where we'll have to get some clarity. It's also very puzzling that actually the rules speak about, they have a definition of foreign clients, but they don't actually use the concept of foreign clients in the rules. It seems to appear here in a sort of non-capitalized way in the class. Yes, you're right. It only refers to foreign law. Yes. So, so, so using use of this concept. Yeah. I mean, can, can, can I raise a, a related question for any of you to answer? Although it's clear that the Bar Council of India regulations try to mirror the international commercial arbitration exception if you register because that's provided for under rule regulation 822. In order for that provision to bite, the client has got to be someone who's got an address or principal office or head office in a foreign country. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't understand that to be anything that comes out of the Balaji decision. So my question is, what do you see as the scope of that limitation and what's the rationale behind it? To me, it, if I may 
express my first impression about that regulation, Stephen. I think at some stage during the process of discussion regarding the rationale for allowing foreign lawyers into India, there was this concern that there are clients who are based outside India and they prefer to bring their own lawyers that they've been working with for a period of time. And it appears to me that Regulation 822 appears to be inspired by that kind of 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 a rationale in the sense that there must be some reason why in an international arbitration a foreign lawyer is being brought in. And the reason need not always be that the client is a foreign entity. It could always also be an Indian client that has a foreign presence and is used to or accustomed to working with a foreign lawyer. However, the downside of that is that in an international arbitration of significant stakes being involved, the rule does not appear to suggest that a purely Indian adversary that has no presence in a foreign country would also be able to engage a foreign lawyer. So to that extent, it creates a situation where which might lead to some degree of restriction of choice, whereas an Indian client because of its presence in a foreign country, would have a choice of Indian lawyers and foreign lawyers available to that client. But an Indian client that doesn't have a presence abroad would be by force, by regulation, be restricted to choice of only Indian lawyers. I think it is not a very uh, robust logic that underlies this regulation, but it appears to me that the reason is that the, that the very basis of the need to bring in foreign lawyers in the mind of the Bar Council appears to be that lawyers that clients are accustomed to working with internationally should be allowed to come in. Though, I mean, funnily enough, the same restriction doesn't seem to be imposed on giving advice and opinions concerning the lawyer, the laws of a foreign country. Yeah, actually, you're right. Because yeah, because the logic would be that the laws of the foreign country are foreign laws and you would obviously need foreign lawyers. No, and, and there is another problem. If you read uh, Rule 8.2.2 and the third paragraph, it says foreign lawyers shall be allowed to practice on transactional work slash corporate work such as joint ventures, mergers and acquisitions, intellectual property matters, drafting of contracts and other related matters on reciprocal basis. Now, suppose you have a foreign law firm and uh, it is it's finalizing a joint venture between a UK company and an Indian company. Now, how, how do you work it out? Does the UK, the foreign law firm advise only the UK counterpart because that will be impractical. If they're going to have a joint with an Indian company, they will be necessarily having an intertwining of both British law, Indian law, and so on. So how does one grapple with that? Or is it that the Indian party will be represented by an Indian law firm and the UK party will be represented by a UK firm? That's another problem. Because that's very general in nature that you can practice mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, say foreign collaborations. So there's a restriction on that. Okay. So, I mean, we've been focusing quite a bit on some of the uncertainties. I think the one thing that is clear, isn't it, is that foreign lawyers, even if registered, are not permitted to appear before any court, tribunal or other statutory or regulatory authority. Can we then see how that impacts on what happens if an Indian advocate becomes a partner of a foreign firm or an associate in a foreign firm? What's the position there? Does the firm, through the Indian advocate, who's a partner in that firm, effectively have rights of audience before the Indian courts or not? Gaurav? I think, Stephen, that that is specifically prohibited in Regulation 2.5. And I think there is a concern 
that is sought to be addressed by this regulation in the sense that a foreign law firm should not be able to indirectly practice before Indian courts just because it has a an Indian qualified lawyer, either as a partner or an associate. I can sense and I can to some extent appreciate that concern because the regulator doesn't want the rule to be circumvented. But I also think that there is a downside to the manner in which this prohibition is drafted. Ultimately, the regulation, at least one of the key uh, sort of uh, objectives of the regulation has to be to sort of advance the cause of the local bar and the local legal community. And I think what the regulation indirectly appears to do is that it closes the option of engaging in practice before Indian courts for those individuals who are dual qualified, Indians who are dual qualified. And we have a substantial representation in the international legal community of very competent Indian lawyers who might be qualified in India as well as in another jurisdiction and are now working either as partners or associates or or, or whatever with with a reputed international law firm to the extent that they have been completely prohibited in from engaging in practice before indian courts as an advocate i see that as as not a very progressive outcome i'll give you an example let us assume that we have a we, we have a we have a great arbitration lawyer who's working with a london based city law firm and the lawyer is so good that over the last 10 15 years he's he's made a name for himself or herself in london even sort of received, you know is in silk now and there is a question of international arbitration before the Supreme Court of India. And if that lawyer wanted to represent an Indian client in his personal capacity as an advocate, not representing through a law firm, the prohibition would prevent him from representing that Indian client in that in that court or tribunal. I think that other jurisdictions, and I don't want to go into specifics, but I think other jurisdictions have been able to work out a more harmonious arrangement for its own uh, citizens who are dual qualified to be able to retain the right to practice in the domestic courts and tribunals and uh, in a manner that does not work to the advantage of their foreign employer or a foreign law firm. So in that sense, I think the prohibition completely overlooks the phenomena of dual qualification and, and lawyers and professionals that practice in more than one jurisdiction based on being called in these jurisdictions independently. Thank you. Moving on from that, can I ask you, Zell, a question that's obviously close to all our hearts? The re Regulation 825 that Gore referred to specifically does say that a partner or an associate in a foreign law firm, blah, 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 can't, can't appear as an advocate, if, even if they are in, in, in an advocate. Does that apply to chambers, barristers' chambers? I don't think so, Stephen, because I think that the rule advisedly uses the word law firm and you will it applies to partners or associates of, in the language of the rule, any foreign law firm. And uh, under Indian law, the distinction between a law firm and a chamber has been very, very well settled for the last 40 or 50 years. So the way that I read this particular rule is to say that if there is an Indian qualified lawyer who is an associate or a partner with a foreign law firm, he gets divested of his right to practice as an Indian advocate. It is a somewhat strange result, I have to say. I do understand the concerns expressed by Gaurav, and I think the rule must be driven by similar apprehensions and similar concerns, but it does leave open several opportunities for law firms to work with Indian lawyers, 
such as the off-council model. I think it leaves a question mark about why Indian lawyers would undergo a dual qualification and practice in India. It seems to me that, since I have to agree with Gaurav, is that it's not a very progressive move. I think that we should encourage a move towards dual qualification and a practice in several jurisdictions and the practice of law under several jurisdictions. And on the question of barristers and chambers then, I mean, you say that your view is is that taking the words at face value, the regulation wouldn't apply to an Indian advocate who joins the chambers as a barrister because they're self-employed. If that's right, do you think that's just a, a lacuna that was overlooked or do you think that was a policy decision that sought to exempt barristers from the prohibition imposed upon law firms? Well, I think that there are two things I can say in response to that. One is to repeat what I did say earlier, that at least the legal community is very alive and conscious to the distinction between uh, law firms and either individual practitioners or barristers. So I would like to think that it's a deliberate use of legal language. The second, I think, is this, is that the practice of law firms is far more prevalent in the non-metropolitan areas of India, whereas Chambers is a phenomenon which is restricted more or less to to a few metropolitan areas, such as Bombay, Madras, Calcutta, and Delhi. So I think that it addresses the broad concerns of the broad category of lawyers, that Indian lawyers should not, through the back door, be practicing, well, as opposed to the other way around, that foreign lawyers should not, through Indian lawyers, be practicing Indian law in India. The answer could be that 825 applies only to law firms and not to individual barristers or lawyers. It can also be highlighted by the fact that if you see the opening part of 82, I mean, before 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 starts, it says practice of law by a foreign lawyer and or a foreign law firm shall include the following. Now, there they use the word foreign lawyer and foreign law firm. But when you come to clause 5, it refers only to a foreign law firm. So one could argue that while drafting 825, they wanted to restrict it only to law firms, such as solicitor firms and not to individual barristers or advocates. I mean, just to give an example, Stephen, I mean, uh, we have now a few youngsters at the English bar, relatively, some of them are senior juniors now, who've done very well. One of them was uh, used to work in Mr. Datar's uh, chamber as well, who've done very well at the English bar. They're practicing as as self-employed barristers in an English set. And I see no reason why they would lose their, any one of them would lose their right of audience before Indian courts or tribunals, should they want to take up a case in their individual capacity as they always do because they're barristers and and advocates self-employed not associated with a law firm i think that would be quite a perverse interpretation of of the rule as it is currently worded but i i still voice the concern that even the prohibition to the extent that it works against employed lawyers with foreign law firms and partners to the extent that it doesn't allow them to work independently of the law firm in india as as a separate consultancy. I think even that is problematic because it doesn't advance the cause of the Indian legal community. Okay, can we move on to something else that is is quite interesting? As I understand it, the Bar Council India can refuse to register a foreign lawyer or a foreign law firm if the number of foreign lawyers or foreign law firms of any particular foreign country registered in India 
is likely to become disproportionate to the number of Indian lawyers or Indian law firms registered or allowed to practice law in the corresponding foreign country. So they place a lot of emphasis upon proportionality. How is that going to work in practice, Arvind? Well, I, I frankly don't know how it, it whether it will work in practice or not. Because if you go by the principle of proportionality, what do you mean? You mean the number of lawyers in India practicing in the UK vis-a-vis the number of UK lawyers practicing in India? Is that the ratio you're contemplating? I mean, if, you, if that is the ratio, you would never satisfy it, given the huge disparity between the population of India and the population of, say, England. England. For, for that matter, any, any country. And we've got, we've got perhaps 1.8 million lawyers here. So that proportionality principle may not really work. Zah? Well, uh, uh, there are two things that I would say that, yes, once again, it is puzzling about how they're going to apply the principle of proportionality. Because as we know, proportionality is a relative concept. It's a sort of comparative concept. So it's very difficult to understand how they will apply it. It's also interesting, Stephen, that if you see that this provision, which is uh, Rule 5, Subrule 4, it appears under the rule which bears the title Validity of Registration and Renewal of Registration. However, it actually seeks to allow the Bar Council to refuse to register any lawyer if there is a disproportionality. So uh, it's not quite renewal. It's actually a way of uh, keeping out foreign lawyers in the event that the Bar Council thinks that there is a lopsided distribution of Indian lawyers in that jurisdiction as compared to foreign lawyers in India. And it ends with the with the language uh, that it is to ensure complete reciprocity, which itself requires a lot of unpacking to understand what the concept of complete reciprocity means. So I think there are lots of questions which needs to be answered to really understand. Can I ask you this as well? I mean, given that the foreign law firm can register as a separate entity in its own right, separate from the foreign lawyers, what happens if, for example, you have an English law firm who can satisfy the reciprocity conditions, but it has an, as an associate or a partner somebody from a country that can't? Can the firm still, through that particular associate or partner, do work in India that's permitted on the grounds that the law firm satisfies the reciprocity requirement? or? Can they not, even though the individual lawyer is not himself or herself registered as a foreign lawyer? Well, that thought did occur to me, Stephen. It occurred to me at like, various stages while I was reading this regulation. And I think to make the regulations actually work at a pragmatic level, the law firm has to be viewed as a holistic and a single unit, not as an aggregation of lawyers. Because many parts of these rules actually they actually make sense only if we view the law firm as a single consolidated unit. So my answer to that would be that it is the principal place of qualification or the headquarters of the law firm which actually matter. Gaurav, do you, do you agree? I agree with Zal that that is a good rational that we can use for the purpose of interpreting the rule. But I fundamentally think that the rule appears that Barkhouse Council of India rules in, in this aspect have been drafted without adequately appreciating the business reality of law firms today. And I think it would be a, an imperfect test to apply if we only look at the principal office or the head office of the law firm. And at the same time, I don't have a clear answer as to what the correct test would would be. So therefore, reciprocity within as a concept in, in, in the Bar Council of India rules 
is a problem area and needs a lot of clarification and and, and a fair bit of thought. I, I could add one thing here. If, if, you apply, if you apply a purposive interpretation, then if the law firm satisfies the test of reciprocity, but the individual lawyer does not. So, for example, suppose a UK law firm starts an office in Bombay, but one of the partners or associates who's coming is from a country which is doesn't have the arrangement of reciprocity, then perhaps it could, it could be argued that that particular lawyer should not be working in India in that foreign law firm because his, his parent jurisdiction or his primary qualification is a different country. The whole idea is on reciprocity is not only the firm but also the individual lawyer must be from a country which has a reciprocal arrangement. That could be a possible interpretation. I was about to say uh, that actually this seems to be supported if you see 821, which provides that foreign lawyers are able to practice in matters including doing work, transacting business, giving advice and opinions concerning the laws of the country of primary qualification. How does this actually work in a law firm, I think, is an important question to be answered. A law firm, obviously, is in the case of an international law firm. You have people who are qualified, for example, in the United States. You have people who are qualified from the UK. You have people who are qualified, let us say, from Korea. Some who are qualified, possibly, even from Singapore. So how is this exactly? No, actually, we had this problem. Some query did come from Singapore, for example. Say the Singapore law firm has lawyers from different jurisdictions. And not all of them have got a reciprocal arrangement so one view that was taken was when the Singapore lawyer deputes a lawyer to India to work, then it should it's advisable to make sure that that particular lawyer is also from a jurisdiction that satisfies the test of reciprocity. Okay, now can we stand back a bit? So at the moment we've got the Balaji decision that we've discussed that allows practice in the two limited circumstances we referred to. We've got the Bar Council of India regulations which in some respects tighten up those two restrictions, but allow practice in other respects that Bilagi doesn't allow. These regulations were notified in March. What's happened since then? I mean, are they going to be implemented? What's the reaction of the local bar in India? When are they going to come into force, if ever? Uh, well, I think the, the Society of Indian Law Firms has objected to these rules. They have said that till you have reforms, what they call domestic reforms, that is to have the same liberalization of Indian lawyers in terms of advertising, in terms of having the websites, third-party funding, and so on. Till then, we should not have the new rules. That's one view taken by the Indian law firms. At the moment, I think the Bar Council rules will be difficult to implement because they are not prescribed in necessary forms. So at the moment, these rules will not apply and we'll have to necessarily go back to the Balaji decision to decide what can or cannot be done at the moment. Zahar, what's your take? Well, it's, it's, it's very difficult to tell, Stephen, about what the real opinion on the ground is. I think that there is certainly a section of lawyers such as us who believe that the entry of foreign lawyers in India in a regulated manner is long overdue. At the same time, I believe that there will be a considerable set of lawyers who would perhaps for reasons which are difficult to articulate and more based in historical prejudice against the move. And the lawyer community is a large community in India. As Arvind referred to, there are about you know 1.8 million lawyers in India. 
So it's very, very difficult to actually poll how the sentiment goes. Laura? I think I would have been able to give a clearer answer if the Indian legal community had itself given a clearer answer. I think a large part of, of the Indian legal profession is, is in smaller towns, small practices, disorganized sector. There's no real sort of response to these rules from, from those uh, practitioners. The Society of Indian Law Firms has surfaced certain significant concerns, or each one of them is a concern that needs to be addressed by the regulator. And I think the rules, even to the extent they allow, uh, even to the extent provide, they provide some clear windows for foreign law firms to come in, have an exorbitant fee structure in the sense that for an individual, it's the equivalent of 25,000 US dollars that one has to pay up for, for getting registered. So I think it is a blend of all of these factors, a disproportionately high entry fee, renewal fee and security deposit regime, a lack of clarity as to what are the advantages of getting registered and an equal lack of clarity as to what are the necessary disadvantages that would that would get invited if a foreign law firm has registered and, and also has significant number of Indian advocates working with it in London, Singapore, whatever. So I think it's it's a lot of grey that has created a bit of a, 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 a bit of a confusion that I don't think there is much enthusiasm about testing the waters so far. I haven't heard of any foreign law firm having proactively applied or taken a first step in this direction. May I also add, actually to Gaurav's point, Gaurav rightly mentions the Society of Indian Law Firms representation. And actually that raises many concerns that most people I think will sympathize with. Namely the concern that there is a need for some domestic reform with regard to the functioning of law firms to actually allow them to work on par with the foreign law firms once they come into India. So I think there is also a part of the sentiment that people will welcome foreign lawyers in India, but there is a feeling that the Indian market has not sufficiently made changes to itself to allow that to take place on a fair and equitable basis. So I think there is a section of lawyers who also believe that perhaps this is not quite the right time when that should take. And, and Stephen, I, mean, I just had one more concern when I speak to the foreign law, I mean, the Indian law firms, they give the example of the chartered accountancy profession where the big four were allowed into India and they've taken out a large amount of work which was earlier with Indian uh, chartered accountants. So almost all the big clients have gone to the foreign chartered accountancy firms, the big four. So there's also a concern that if you allow the foreign law firms to come, many of the Indian, especially in the commercial capital. Now these foreign law firms are not going to affect the smaller towns in India because nobody's going to worry about civil criminal litigation. I don't think any British firm is going to set up an office in a district court. That work is not there. Basically, only going to be in the three, four major cities doing important commercial work. So one concern is that how do you address that concern? Because given the restrictions on Indian practitioners, they may not be able to compete or have a the same level playing field with the British firms or the Singapore firms for that matter. So this chartered account experience also is one concern which is articulated by the Indian law firms. Okay, so I mean, let's conclude on this. I mean, what we've been discussing so far is a new potential regime set up by the Bar Council of India to permit foreign lawyers to practice law in India. 
and it's looking like it's not going anywhere fast at the moment. To what extent would it be open to a foreign lawyer to avoid all those problems by being applying to be called to the Indian bar as an advocate directly? Goran. So I think when we talk of foreign lawyers practicing in India, obviously there are two broad issues and nearly the entire debate in, in, in amongst lawyers in India and by the regulator is centered around allowing foreign lawyers to practice based on their qualification as a foreign lawyer. The relatively unexplored area in our regulatory regime is for a foreign citizen to acquire the qualification that is sufficient for the purpose of being called at the Indian bar here and then being called here as an advocate. It appears, I mean, from a recent decision of the Delhi High Court, it it, it appears that the the regulatory framework would allow a foreign uh, citizen, a a, a non-Indian citizen of another country to be called in India subject to the satisfaction of two tests. Uh, One, of course, is that the applicant's own country allows a duly qualified Indian lawyer who to go through the process of being called in that jurisdiction to have the same kind of access. For example, if if Great Britain, if Britain allows, if the United Kingdom allows me to be called in England as a barrister, if I go through the process of being called, writing the exams, doing the pupillage and everything, then the first criteria appears to be satisfied. So British citizens should be able to apply to the Bar Council of India uh, and the the, the test of reciprocity would be satisfied. The second test in, in Indian law under the advocate's is the is either possessing an Indian law qualification uh, or possessing an English or, or a foreign law degree that is recognized in India. So there is some degree of clarity on those aspects. So if uh, in one case in the Bombay High Court, the issue really was that a British citizen who had been living in India wanted to be called here in India. And, and she, uh, subject to correction, I think she, she had a foreign law degree that was recognized for the purpose of enrollment of Indian advocates who had obtained that foreign law degree and had wanted to come back to get enrolled. I think that with some degree of compromise with the regulator, but without specifically laying down a precedent, that enrollment went through and she was qualified. She was called the Indian bar. And there is another precedent where a Korean national applied to be called here in India based on a qualification obtained from an Indian university that is recognized. And again, the test of reciprocity was satisfied. He was able to demonstrate that that an Indian national would be able to do that in Korea. And the Delhi High Court upheld that decision. So I think to the extent if a a non-Indian citizen coming from a jurisdiction that allows Indian lawyers to subject themselves to the process of being called in that jurisdiction and have a fair chance, wants to do the same thing in India, the only requirement would be to have a qualification, a law degree that is recognized in India. The, the, The regulator's position on this issue is not very clear, and there has been uh, opposition in both the two cases that I that I just mentioned, but it appears that the courts are leaning in favor of upholding that right, which which actually to me it appears to be a a clear interpretation of the statute at, as it is currently drafted and appears to be the right way forward. Arvind, do you think that's a viable option? Yes, I think I generally agree with Doro that what he said is quite doable at the moment. Zal. Well, uh, while Gaurav was speaking, the one thought that did cross my mind, Stephen, is, for example, if we have a citizen from a particular country who has been admitted onto the state rolls to practice, 
what is to prevent other citizens from the same country having similar qualifications from also getting onto the state? I would think that on parity of reasoning, they would also be entitled to get onto the state roles. If they get onto the state roles, then of course they are entitled to practice law on an entirely different footing than foreign lawyers. So it seems to me to be an entirely advantageous way to actually practice law in India, in the sense that you get recognized as an Indian lawyer on the state roles, and then none of these restrictions apply to you. Presumably, you would be able to practice Indian law before the Indian courts, but you could also practice English law if you're English qualified as well. So you're, you're one stroke free from the restrictions or the proposed restrictions in the Bar Council of India regulations. I think that's right. I think they would, they would be on the same footing as any of us today. Yeah, it's, it's just a bit of an uncharted territory in the sense that nobody has explored this option. And I think at some stage a few years ago, like almost two decades ago, there was a bit of a bit of an objection raised at some level to this. But the regulatory framework, the statutory framework is such that it would allow it, I think, subject to the test of reciprocity, which would be slightly different because it is not a test of reciprocity of applying foreign lawyers into the, the other jurisdiction. It's a test of reciprocity with respect to foreign citizens having equal right of being called in the other jurisdiction subject to satisfying the local requirements. And I agree with Zal. If an application was to go through this route and was successful, the applicant would be a fully qualified advocate. And this structure also would allow dual qualified lawyers to practice in different jurisdictions according to the according to the sort of registration uh, or rights of audience that they have achieved in their respective jurisdictions. No, Stephen, I'll just add that this would be very clear from section 24, subsection 1, clause A, that even if you're a national of any other country, you can be admitted into any state bar council. For example, you can, you, for example, can be admitted to the bar council of Maharashtra because a citizen of India duly qualified can practice in your country. So this is a good way of uh, enrolling as an advocate here and also practicing and then being on par with any Indian advocate for that matter. The only caveat would be, sir, I think that the law degree will have to be one of those that the law, uh, that the Bar Council of India recognizes. So for Stephen, for Stephen, it may be less difficult or for, for somebody else who's gone to another English British university that is not in the list of recognized university, it might be impossible. But that is the only caveat, I think. Yeah, that, that's why he was duly qualified. So I yes, think so duly qualified. Yeah. Well, having raised that very teasing last minute possibility, I think, I think it only remains to me to thank all three of you for navigating us through what is an incredibly complicated and fast-moving in some ways, slow-moving in other ways, area of Indian law. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. So there we are, a wide-ranging discussion which makes clear, if nothing else, that the extent to which foreign lawyers should be able to practice in India is contentious and that the recent BCI draft regulations aimed at reform are replete with uncertainty. Uncertainty as to when, if ever, they will be implemented, and uncertainty as their effect, if ever they are implemented in the present form. Watch this space. Once again, I'm grateful to our speakers, Arvind Datta SA, Gaurav Pachnanda SA, and Zal Andrew Regina SA, for their insightful views. I hope our listeners enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast.